On the podcast today, we will be touching on topics that are very popular at practice management meetings. How to attract an associate, how to compensate an associate, how to keep an associate. And we are going to also talk about the differences between a buying group, alliance group, and franchisee type of groups, as well as what do we do about private equity? Keep our private practices, sell out to private equity, and what's the influence going to be on optometry long term? We will get into the nitty gritty of exactly how to compensate an associate doctor and what they have to do to earn that compensation and to keep successful with the practice. Stay tuned. We are going to be speaking with Jerry Sood, president of Novus Clinic, and his long-term experience in leading the profession with OD Excellence and PECA and a practice that has been successful with multi-locations, multi-ODs, and MDs. Welcome to Eyetrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes. I'm Dr. Raymond Brill with my co-host, Perry Brill, and we're here to bring you stories about Wizards of Eyes. Yes, what is a wizard, Dr. Brill? These are folks that you may have heard about, may not have heard about. These are people who are actually very successful in doing what they do in all aspects of eye care. We're not talking to self-proclaimed industry geniuses, experts, masters, or gurus because we're talking to wizards of eyes that make it happen each and every day. They are out there working every day in the labs, on the road, in the practices, in surgery suites, making lenses, making frames. Yes, we want to hear these back-of-the-house stories about innovation, entrepreneurship, and make you feel excited to do what you do. We want you to be energized about the whole eye care field. And this is not your big optical program. This is done out of the passion of our hearts. Please go ahead and subscribe to Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or your favorite app. Also, visit Entrepreneur.com where you'll find our latest blogs and special video content. That's www.eyetrepreneur.com. Today, we are pleased to have with us Dr. Jerry Sood. He's president of Novus Clinics in Northeast Ohio, a seven location practice with 14 ODs and five MDs. And Jerry, welcome to the broadcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we'd like to know a lot about your success. And uh, we met a long time ago uh, through OD Excellence. And when I was uh, executive uh, in the area and you were really the head honcho, but times change, don't they? Yeah, they do. They do. And so OD Excellence now, we're, we're, we're really excited that we have merged with PECA. Professional Eye Care Associates of America, and uh, it's been a very successful uh, union between the two groups, and uh, we're having a lot of fun with that and, and, and helping a lot of practices. Well, Jerry, tell us a little bit about your background, where you went to school, how you got involved at these high levels in, uh, in optometry. Tell us a little bit about you know, what we need to know about your background and how you get started. Yeah, thank you. So I, I went to undergraduate school I went to Kent State and Ohio State and ended up going to professional school at Southern College of Optometry in, in Memphis and graduated in 1972, so I'm kind of a dinosaur, and have been practicing ever since. And, and, and unfortunately, I'm very, very lucky, and I'm still very passionate about the industry, love what I'm doing, and with, with all the challenges that we're seeing, uh, everyone has to understand there's always opportunity. I started my practice kind of working through unions and kind of built my practice through union safety programs and through the factory. Back in those days, Akron, Ohio uh, was a tire capital of the world. So I was able to secure eye safety programs through the safety directors, as well as tie into all the unions to get all the union eye business. And that's really how I got my start. I built, I had four locations 
was approached by a large union group in the late 80s, which actually acquired my practice. My attorney said it was something I should really look at doing and got beyond my non-compete and I terribly missed being in a private practice. So start up again and really started the first true ODMD stock partnership in the country in 1991. And uh, we have we have since grown. As uh, you had mentioned, Ray, we have seven locations, 14 ODs, five MDs, and we also have a Triple HC Medicare approved ambulatory surgery center where we do we do oculoplastics, cataracts, and elective procedures like LASIK and, and plastics from the chin up. So So uh, can ODs be partners with MDs in your in Ohio? Yes, they can. And they can in most states today. So back in those days, there was not a state that allowed it, but but there were things that you could do to, to allow you to do that uh, until such a time that the laws change. So, but today in almost all states, MDs and ODs are allowed to be partners under the same corporate ID. Obviously you have to check your state, but there's only a few states and that may have changed that, that, that make it a little bit difficult. So that's what we presently have in Akron, Ohio. I also started in 2008 an alliance, which became the fourth largest Optometric Alliance in the U.S., which is just shy of a thousand OD members called OD Excellence. It was uh, my partner was Dr. Jerry Liebline, and we we had a great time building that building that organization. And our mantra initially was education, and Dr. John McGrill was our director of education. And as we grew that group, we added a lot of other value added, as far as better insurance reimbursements, the typical, you know, strategic alliance partnerships for as far as a buying group or a GPO and 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 always maintain our educational aspect which we thought was a differentiator for us and and as I may have alluded to before we merged with PECA back in a year and a half ago July July of 2018. So, so there's a little confusion still between the difference in alliance groups and in purchasing groups or what we used to call buying groups so can you distinguish between those two right now? Sure, that, that, that's a great question because it's very misunderstood. So people always look at GPOs, which are group purchasing organizations or buying groups. And they, and they some, for some reason think that alliances are, are very similar. So a GPO or the typical buying group in the optometric community pretty much has every vendor under every category. So there's not a vendor that you want or might do business with that's not in a, an alliance group. Any group that you might want to work with is going to be in that group, whether you work with them or not. In an alliance group, the difference is that we deal with a finite amount of vendors. So for example, under the frame category, we may only have four or five frame vendors, where if you're looking at a typical GPO or buying group, you may have 50 frame vendors. So we firmly believe that we like we look for we consider best in category and leverage and leverage ourselves to get the best pricing for our members, which is almost a hundred percent of the time better discounts than you're going to get in any buying group. So that's the main difference is less less vendors, more leveraging, better pricing, just allowing you to lower your cost of goods. And then how does that contrast with groups like uh, Vision Source or Vision Trends, where they really, I guess they have part ownership or their practices. Can you yeah, draw so that distinction? Vision Source, not so much Vision Trends. Yeah, so the difference is we're all alliance groups. Vision Source obviously has been the largest. And the difference Vision Source has taken on more of a program where they don't really own your practice, but they, they fit under that umbrella of being a partner. So they have to abide by state laws and, and state laws are different around the country. And usually in most cases, your, your membership fee is a percent of your collected revenues. Where with us, we had, we had a set fee of, of 199 and that was what you paid no matter if you had one practice or many practices. So in the vision source concept, it's more of a franchisee, franchisor mentality without going through uh, the, the, the real uh, typical franchisee laws because Vision Source on paper does not own your practice, but they certainly have a group on it for the length of the contract. And, and, and the other alliance groups, 
like PECA and OD Excellence, there's there's no contract. You leave when you want, no penalty. Yeah, it seems like as soon as buying groups became available in what the 1980s or so, everybody joined one and then promptly the prices all went up to match the discount. So now, uh, I guess if you're not in an alliance group or a buying group or part of a franchise situation, I mean, you're really host, right? I mean, everybody's got to be in something. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it, it's difficult for an independent practitioner to see patients, take care of operations, meet with your key people, your, your accounts receivable people, your, you know, your billing people, just to make sure you're on top of your operations, looking at your benchmarks to make sure they're being met. And then, and then it, thirdly, find time to do strategic planning to grow your business. So it's very, very difficult without some kind of partner to do those three things on you. Yeah, optometrists are, are notorious for not being the best business people. Uh, we love our clinical hats, as you just like to say, but we don't care for our business hats too well, right? Yeah, that, that, that's correct. I, and I wish, I wish that wasn't the case. I mean, the schools, I think, are starting to get it. But I think when you're in school, there, there needs to be more of that type of education, really understand the economics of our industry and how to run a business. And, and I think if the schools do more of that, we're going to find more graduates partnering with, with companies like us that help will mentor an OD that actually is, is committed to buying a practice or starting a practice core. Uh, well, I think they, they are kind of counting on the externship programs in private practices to really give that level of education. Although there's still a really big push to just do externships at VAs, you know, so you get the the clinical part, their hands-on clinical, but I, I think that's all changing. So let's get into how to get an associate and how how practices are going to be transitioning here. There seems to be some trends as of the last few years where practices that were established and successful now have other challenges and are and are seeking various forms of exit strategies. So perhaps we could just start with the most traditional one. How do you get an associate and how do you transition and pay and relate to that associate in private practice? Okay, great question. Probably one of the probably that question is asked more than anything else. When when I'm when I'm asked, when when people when we're asked to get topics, that's that's the that's the topic that seems to be the the flavor of the year over the last couple of years. So um, so just take the next three hours and let us know how that works, okay? <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try to do it in five, less than five minutes if I can. Okay, okay. Uh, so what actually, what we're finding today is when you're thinking about an associate, there's certain things you have to think about so you don't make strategic errors. Number one is, why do you want an associate? Number one. So are, is it because you're booked out two weeks? And if you are booked out two weeks, how many patients are you seeing an hour? Or is it you just want to practice part-time and you realize maybe I don't really need an associate, but I want to cut back and do other things in my life. It might be putting more attention into actually running your business, or you may have other interests. So let's take the, the first option, which is you feel you're busy enough to bring an associate. What I do find frequently, when I ask the question I just brought up, doctors say I'm seeing one or two patients an hour and I'm booked out two weeks. And I'd really like to bring an associate in. And, and my response to that question is quite simply, if you've ever thought of a scribe, a chair-side assistant, which is you're bringing in someone at $15 to $20 an hour versus bringing an OD in, where, and all you want to do with that scribe is increase your schedule from one or two hour to three or four an hour. And, and that's typically what I do in my practice. Most of the ODs of my, that I brought into my group uh, see at least three patients an hour with a with a technician or four patients an hour if they have a tech and a chair side assistant. Yeah, we agree on that one. I think the pairing a scribe with automated fropters and high-tech equipment, uh, you can create a lot of efficiencies within the practice. So I agree we should think about upgrading our tech and better training our personnel before hiring. And for our listeners, I, I do have videos that I've done on how to do all that, how to employ a scribe and how to uh, use the automation to be more efficient. Great. That, that, Let's check it out in the show notes, and we'll, you'll be able to watch how to do that. Because a lot of people you know, say, use a scribe, but they have no idea where to put the person, how the, per, 
how the scribe is going to be standing, how they're going to be participating. So just look in the show notes for that, and you can just kind of watch how I do it. Yeah, and that, that's a great point. I, I would encourage everyone to do that because scribes do more than enter data. My, all, of, all of our scribes are medically trained to identify medical, eye medical issues that require follow-up. So if I'm telling my scribe, for example, cut this 0.5 OD and 0.7 OS, she knows immediately that the asymmetry is a risk factor for glaucoma. So she automatically will schedule a glaucoma workup because sometimes we all know we get caught up, we get busy, we have patients waiting for us, and we may forget to do that at the end. My scribes identify and make sure a follow-up appointments and tests are scheduled. So that's a, a secondary function of our scribes, but a very important one. So yeah, yeah, it's amazing how, how quickly, when we look at the Optimap together, I can ask them, hey, uh, Courtney, do you see anything? Because sometimes they may see something that I'm not paying attention, or they know right away what I'm thinking, that this is going to be a macular uh, workup or, or dry eye workup or a glaucoma workup. So they know the whole story and what I'm going to say and how to schedule it, and I can just shortcut. Hey, so. hey Jerry, um, I think we're going to hear a lot of objections from doctors saying, well, I'm a really fast typist, or the patient might think it's awkward that there's three people in the room. So how do you answer those objections? Yeah. So what we find, I get very, very, matter of fact, I can't think the last objection I've gotten from a patient. When I tell the patients, and now I only have to tell you once or twice because I've had a scribe for, for 10 years, but when, when patients come in and if they're newer patients or forget, I say, I have a gal that's going to be working with me. They'll be doing our data entry, which allows me to spend more quality time with you. And, and that's my, and patients really appreciate that because, I, and I just say, I'm not going to be turning, entering data. I'm going to spend all my time uh, concentrating on what we're doing here. So patients seem to, to like that. And I think they, they put a higher value on that visit than they do when you don't have cheer side help or a technician. And by the way, that data was, there's data that came out a few years ago from OD Pro, which is a company that spent, was spent off of J&J that, that found that people felt the quality of an exam was better when you had, uh, when you had auxiliary personnel working with you. So I think it's, it's a good, it's an important thought. Uh, I understand that, but I can tell you that patients do not look at it negatively at all. No, I think patient, patients really do like it. Plus, it, it does protect us in some way. You know, when someone says, oh, that's not what I said, you misinterpreted me. You know, when you have a second person in there who's writing a lot of things down, they're like, oh, I won't be able to pull that little trick. But I think what Perry was alluding to is actually doctors, doctors who are resistant to change. Doctors said, you know, I can type really fast and I don't need, I don't need a scribe. I'll type, I type fast. And I can do it more efficient without it. I mean, they don't understand, and that's what they'll see in the videos. But you know, when I when I go over to the slit lamp, the lights go down. My lens my lens is handed to me. I'm calling out the numbers, and it's it's much more efficient. And the patient hears all that. They think, boy, he's he's looking at stuff and he's thinking about it. And then later on, we we discuss it. So and, and I agree. And I agree. And for the doctors who 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 prefer the other way, I'm finding less and less. I'll tell you what I'm finding today is once I bring a new OD in, I have six ODs that are under the age of 30 now. And when I bring an OD in, that's maybe spent a year or two out in practice somewhere, whether it be in a commercial setting or somewhere else, who's never had a scribe. When I put a scribe in front of them, probably within a month, they, they'll come to me because I meet with all our doctors every three months for lunch. They usually will tell me, I don't know how I lived without it. It's the greatest thing. Right. So I can promise you it's a positive thing. It allows you to see more patients. And busier is better because if you can create density with your patients per hour, I promise your revenues increase at the end of the year. Right. Uh, so let's get in. Let's get into the other portion of this. So you said. So let's say you are booked out two weeks. You're already using a scribe. Now, what's the process to find so, a, a associate that can do what you want them to do? Um, so, and what I mean by that is we have a big dry eye clinic, so we need someone that is a little knowledgeable about dry eye. They just can't. Be ignoring all those um, symptoms. So, so you're an OD. You're practicing. You're booked up a couple weeks in advance. You're using. You're, you're seeing. You know, three to four patients an hour, and that's the time you need because being booked two weeks out is no. The payers don't like that. We want to see patients within a within a week. And if you look at Cleveland Clinic advertising, it's call call today for an appointment today. So access is hugely important. So 
That being the case, then the process of finding that right OD. Now, there's lots of areas to find ODs, so your state association, there's agencies that, employment agencies that have them, a big one in Florida. So what you need to do is you need to interview ODs and, and what we do to, to find that right OD, and I think Perry Ray, you had mentioned someone who knows dry eye, is once we get an OD after meeting with that individual for you know several visits and we feel this person really looks like they're in alignment with, with you know our culture and what we do, I will always have the new OD follow me for a half a day, not for clinical reasons. I want them to see what I do in that exam, what my post-exam wrap-up looks like, how I make a suggestion for at least three pair of glasses for every single patient and how I do it. And then when I get done with that half a day, I usually will meet with that OD at lunch and I say, there's no right or wrong. What was your feeling on what you saw me do? And you, if, if an OD said, you know, that was really great. I don't know if I could ever do that. I say, that's not a problem, but that person is not probably going to fit into our culture. Usually if I have a, if I have a doctor say that was great, I love it. That's the way I should be doing it. And usually then that's the kind of doctor I'm looking at hiring. So we want to make sure that we get, we get a candidate that not only is a good clinician, a good salesperson, but really fits into our culture of, because we're, we're, not only a high retail practice, we're a very high medical practice as well. And uh, we want a doctor that buys into both and wants to practice that way. So once, once we get a doctor who we feel uh, fits in our culture and, and we make them an offer, then the key is, you know, we covered the first part. How do you know when you need an associate? Okay. And, and I think the key is being booked out too far or opening other locations where you need a, need a doc. The, the question that always comes up is how do I compensate an employee? And I think a new employee OD. And I think one of the most important things is you must be looking at your P&Ls every single month. And if you don't have a grip on your net profit before any doctor compensation, you're going to make errors that could cost you money moving forward. So I mentioned this for a reason because it segues right into employee compensation. So in a, in, a rel, in, a, in a practice that we considered C efficient, that means your net profit before any doctor comp is 25% of collected revenues, that's a C. When you look at A to F, that's a C. When you get to 30%, that's usually an A, meaning that your net profit before doctor comp is 30 or more, 30 or higher percent of, of collected revenues. So that's really good. You'd be amazed at how many practices I look at they have net profit before Dr. Comp of 18%, 20%, really practices that are not doing very well. And it, you, and it can, usually comes from the retail part of their business. So when you hire a doctor, when we hire a doctor, we pay 15% of collected revenues and we have a, a whole program that covers benefits, a whole benefit package. Our benefit package uh, runs between 10 and $13,000 a year. And that's presented to that doctor totally separate because I think a lot of people are saying plus benefits and, and it creates no value. You have to have a, you have to have a term sheet of benefits only and what the value is. So yeah. we, hey we, Jerry, we, I want to, before we get into that, you just mentioned you give them a percentage of the collected revenue. Is that right? Correct. Okay. So obviously during the eye exam, let's say you have a young gentleman, 30 years old, healthy, you know, he's going to, he's wearing contacts, but he's going to need glasses too. So how do you breed new optometrists to talk about selling from the chair because you know they're responsible for their income at this point so how do you go about that so that comes up in the interview process we talk about that and and make sure they're comfortable if they say they are comfortable then i have them as i mentioned follow me for half a day i meet them for lunch because i'm recommending at least three pair of glasses plus context plus other any follow-up visits that we need to do to every single patient and uh, if that doctor says, I'm really comfortable, that's what I, I want to do, then usually we've already got, taken through that process at least twice. And then we monitor their sales and we tell them that we monitor all of our sales every month and we share that information. So a doctor's got to buy into that concept before we're going to hire them. Okay. So they have to be willing to put some skin in the game is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Now they're going to get a guaranteed uh, draw from us against 15% of collections. So if, if, and, I, and we bonus every single month. I think bonusing quarterly is a mistake. Bonusing yearly is even a bigger mistake. We bonus every month. So 
if 15% of your collections exceeds what your draw was, you get bonus to difference the following month. And, and I think I've had one month, I think I've had one or two months in the last five years where I had one doctor who was underwater. So it, it's really important that you, you watch that draw that you're paying to make sure that draw is not gonna be too high. Okay, and, and we increase the draw with the doctor if in fact the bonuses are pretty high. I had one doctor who was averaging five or $6,000 bonus every month and he wanted to increase his draw by three, 4,000 a month. I had no problem with that. So, you know, that, that percent of collections and bonusing every month makes it, makes it really interesting because the doctor always, had, the entrepreneurial doctor always realizes if they're hitting it hard that month, they're going to get a much bigger paycheck the following month. So if they get 150,000 per million of collected revenue. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, yeah. and if they have, let's say they take two weeks off. Part of the benefit package, they get, they're getting paid vacation. They're getting, you know, my benefit, you can, you can create whatever benefit package you want. We pay $1,500 a year for CE. So if they want to go to the Bahamas and they spend 2000, then they, we give them 15, they spend 500 their own money. If they want to go somewhere and spend 1500, then we pay for that whole, you know, venue on our own. So you know, we, we have a lot of benefits where we pay medical, dental. We've got uh, a, a whole package that I do for people specialized. So I've had two of our doctors do an ortho K. I pay for their trips to the national ortho K meetings every year. So when you, when you add up all the, uh, we also pay for your license. We pay for, you know, we, when you right. add up, what we pay it, it comes up to about 12 or 13,000 a year. Okay. So that's good. Now, when the, when the employee uh, doctor really, I mean, it's just slow. Let's say you got, you know, you got a slow month. Sometimes that happens probably in Ohio, like everywhere else, you know, the weather's terrible or something like that. You, you still pay them their draw. Absolutely. And then, yeah, then they to, have to catch up though. Do they have to catch up? Yeah, well, yeah, we, we talked to them. I've never, so in the contracts with RODs, I always say that if you're underwater, that difference. So if you're, if 50% of your collections are less than, are, are significantly less than the draw, then you're underwater and you really owe the practice that difference. But I've never really collected it from a doctor. I, I put it in the contract that they owe us, but I always want to give them, you know, I usually meet with them and, and we review, you know, the data, how many patients, what's the revenue per refraction, all the KPIs are really important to understand and try to find out where, where the, what's the issue, where are they missing? I may talk to the scribe uh, or the technician that might give me some information. And I've had one doctor in, in probably 20 years I let go because they, they, were, they were just not living up to what they agreed to do with us. And we, we shook hands and separated. They just didn't fit the culture. But so let's say, so one month, they, they basically, they're under it by 10%. Now the next month they they're over it by 10%. Do they still get their 10% bonus or you're like, okay, well now you're even. I usually will do now you're even. Okay. But, but I haven't made, but, but I haven't taken it off their paycheck in right. my contract. I'm able to do that. So when it's 10, let's say they get 10% over, do you give them that full amount or is that a, a is that a shared amount at the 15% level? So I'll give you an example. If, if their draw is ninth, if their draw is 10,000 a month, Let's assume there, I have one doctor who's just killing okay. it. Uh, she collects about, she collects 1.4 million herself, one doctor. So if in, in that practice, if she, if 15% of her collections are $16,000 and I pay her 10 a month, I just deduct that 16 from 10. So the next month she'll get her 10 plus a $6,000 bonus. Oh, so she earns the full overage. Full overage, 100%. I see. That's it's good. still 15%. I've never exceeded 15%. So remember we talked about the P&Ls? So if you have a 25% net profit before doctor compensation, and if I'm paying 15% plus the benefit package may, it, may equate to two to 3%, uh, I'm making at least a 7% ROI on every dime I collect with that patient. Over that, uh, okay, for that employee. Yep. Okay, so um, can we talk about what happens when this Let's say you're a one doctor practice, you hire somebody on, uh, five years goes by, and now um, you're thinking, hey, maybe this person wants to buy in. Uh, how do we go about that process? We're in this whole age of private equity. So 
does this doctor want a partner or are they just thinking, ah, I'll sell it to private equity, Goldman Sachs, make it so, easy. So that, that has to be discussed at the time you hire a doctor. So when you bring a doctor, a new doctor in, it's not unusual for the discussion from the new doctor saying, is there an opportunity to buy in or have equity? And, and just to let everyone know that listen to this call, there's no such thing as right or wrong. In other words, whatever you do is, is great. Whatever works for you, okay? Uh, in my practice, I don't offer equity to anybody, any other doctor, okay? So I let them know right out of the gate there won't be any equity. And now I've had a few occasions where that didn't work. The doctor wasn't interested and we shook hands and that was it, okay? But there's a lot of docs I talk to that want to bring junior partners in and allow them to buy in. And I think that's, I think that's wonderful. So at some point, you know, you, you have to treat that a little bit differently. You should, you should make sure you're valuing your practice every year and make sure that doctor, you may have some kind of agreement to, with to buy in at some point, understands what those valuations are and have some predetermined form, formula of EBITDA as far as how you're going to sell that. Obviously, it, it, that's, it, that, if that's part of your exit strategy, then there's nothing wrong with that at all. And, and exit strategies are, that, that's a term that, that varies from, you know, selling to taking an associate to just changing the amount of hours you want to see patients to adding more load. It's a broad term that, that equates to a lot of different things. And now a short break from our sponsor, Entrepreneur, the podcast that sponsors itself. We're here to let you know that we have a new 24-7 Eye Care Hotline. Text Dr. Brill or Perry and ask them any question you have, business, medical, clinical advice, or you just want to vent. 913-660-2855. Send us messages anytime. We're not annoyed. We're just annoyed by kids screaming on an airplane. Back to the show. I do want to get back just for a moment to, let's say for those doctors that you have met 15% and they're okay with it and they're actually performing, how do you handle the scheduling part? And actually, you know, I, I've got colleagues locally who call me and say, you know, and, and let's say just female doctor with a female associate, female associate says, look at, I don't have anything scheduled. I'm just going to go home and I'm going to go home, take care of my baby and call me if a patient shows up. You know, yeah, and, and these female yeah. doctors are, are like, I am livid. You know, I am paying her to be here. And even though there's nothing to do, I want her here. And from the young associates, they're like, look at, I'm, you know, I'm just bored. I'm just playing on social media. Uh, I might as well go home and take care of my family. So address that issue about the hours and the coverage uh, that makes it fair for both. So again, it's a great question. We, we had that discussion with a new hire before they come on board. So we've created a very family-oriented environment in our practice. So if it's a male that has some issues or a female that has, it doesn't matter if they have family, that there's some kind of family crisis, whether it be a sick child or anything, we tell that person, take care of your children and we'll cover. We never question that ever. Right. Okay? So that that's a given. Now, if that doctor is not real busy and we try real hard to make sure that doesn't happen, but if they're not, if they're not real busy, they, they, you know, if they head home, that's not the type of doctor I want to work with. You got a family of four and they just drop out of the schedule. Uh, little Joey's sick. So we're, we're going to have to come back some other time. Now they got two, you know, they've got an hour and a half, two hours free and they're like, okay, well, I'm going to go run some errands and, so, uh, or, yeah. you know, show, I'll show up 20 minutes after my uh, scheduled appointments are and I'm done. I'm going to leave a half an hour early. So I know that there has been, that's a point of contention with a lot of I'll call them senior docs, uh -huh. that the junior docs says, look, I just want to be there to see the patients. You're not paying me really. I'm paying on production. You're not paying me really to be there. So you probably feel they should be there, right? And maybe help develop, do some development of the practice or help. Yes, you, you, hit it on the, you hit it on the head there. So, so what we would do if, they, if there was nothing scheduled, in our practice, our promoting we do, since we have multiple locations, is call our office before two o'clock and we guarantee appointment the same day. We don't know which location. We'll guarantee wow. an appointment, okay? And, and, and I can tell you that the, the ACOs that we work with locally and the, and the payers love that about us. And I can't tell you the amount of calls I get because as I mentioned, access is hugely important. Right. So those patients I want in the office. Now, there may be a company across the street with 100 employees 
and I may say, you know, Dr. Jones, why don't you go across the street? I'm going to make a call for you. I'm going to have one of the gals call the HR department. I, they'd, I'd like you to, I have a meeting for you to meet them. If we get an appointment, you know, we'll call you, come right back, right across the street. Go introduce yourself, talk about what you're doing, uh, give them business cards. So promote yourself. And by the way, in, in our contracts with our employed ODs, we spell it exactly what's, what's, what we like them to do. And that's one of them is, is self-promoting the practice with, with entities that we all agree upon. So, yeah, so going home, just to go home where there's no family crisis is, is we don't really, we frown on that. Okay. Yeah. So that clears, that'll clear that up for a lot of people. I know from the junior doc standpoint, it's like, you know, I'm just, I'm just playing around anyway. I don't have nothing, I have nothing to do. I have nothing to do. So, I, I, okay. don't, I don't know if that word, that word shouldn't exist. Okay. So there's always something to do. There's always ways to self-promote yourself. There's always things you do call there's always something to do so that's the call that's the kind of mentality mm -hmm. i think all of us would like to have part ods that we work with have that kind of mentality okay so i see a, a trend now here i'm in the middle of the country i'm in kansas city and um well we have our urban area of maybe two million uh there's rural areas where the senior doc is trying to plan ahead maybe even five years and cannot find an, an associate uh, I mean, there's just very few applicants for the last couple of years in Kansas. We've had 11 applicants for one year, 17 for another, and there's just so few applicants here. And I've quizzed the, uh, the KOA and I've quizzed other people and they think, you know, right now there's a trend for people not wanting to go to more rural states, especially if they're not, if they don't have full scope practice, which means removal of lid lesions and lasers. So there's going to be docs that are out there just unfortunately probably just closing the door without having the chance to really take on an associate. So what are we to do about this? How do we attract uh, doctors to the, the smaller, more rural practices where often they are very profitable. They don't, they're not subject to the influence of managed care. Uh, they're not subject to all, you know, all the big box competitors like a Walmart, let's say. What are we going to do about the profession here? And, and what works against that, especially now, is, is private equity. So a lot of our locations, or most of them, are in, in rural settings, okay? Uh, I think everyone who's been looking for optometrists over the last 12 to 18 months, I know there's always exceptions, have probably found it's been tougher to find ODs over the last year, year and a half than we've seen in, and I've seen in, in 40 plus years. Okay, so, and, and, I agree. And, and so we're, we're now finding that to change a little bit. And I just found that over the last 30 to 60 days. So I think, I think the key is you need to involve yourself in whatever your state, if whatever optometry school you work with, you want to get involved in their extracurricular program and make sure you have ODs coming through your office as often as you can, because these are all potential candidates for other offices. But if you're not, if, if, if you're just opening a rural practice or you're trying to sell one, and you just and you can't find an OD. I think the key is you've got to create an amazing opportunity. And and when you're promoting that, whatever you know the 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 way you promote that practice to get that OD is is got to be done in such a manner that you're going to hit the right button with somebody. And I think if you're looking just to bring in an associate but not really to sell the practice, I think the key is you're going to probably have to up the pay scale a little bit to get that person. To be able to, to move there but i think the key is create an environment that makes that that od says you know what no one's really offered this they're going to get they're allowing me to do the things that i really want to do you've got to make it got to make have a very attractive offering bring people into certain remote areas and and that's it's not always easy but you have to continue and if you're finding you're not getting success you're probably you need to expand the vehicles you're using not just through all through social media, but there's some, there happens to be some employment agencies, the one in Florida, you know, you're gonna have to pay for this, but they seem to really do a pretty doggone good job in having applicants anywhere around the country. And so I've, I've hired, I think two ODs that, I mean, it's pretty expensive cost you, you know, depending where you're paying them anywhere from 15 to 20 some thousand dollars that first year. But if you really look at that in the whole realm of things and, and what you're uh, attempting to do in the future, I, I think it's money well spent. 
So it's, it's challenging. You're 100% right, Ray, that's difficult. It's getting a little bit better, but you've got to get very creative and generous in your offer. Okay, so I've seen some recent posts about, uh, and actually these were from students, uh, concerning please don't sell, you know, please don't sell the PE. Please consider we young ODs, we're $300,000 in debt, but we wanna join private practice. We have private practice clubs. And I didn't post on that, but can you can you go through that? I mean, I, it's just sometimes they don't understand the dynamics. You know, a doctor yeah. in a small town may only have one or two exam rooms, yeah. and they don't have double the practice to just hand it in and uh, and pay that that junior doc you know super well. I mean, they're going to be taking a cut. Plus, there's a value now. Now our practices weren't just like they were before, where you just had a you know, basic exam room, that was your equipment. Now, uh, you know, if you're doing sophisticated uh, glaucoma or retinal work or macular degeneration, or, or definitely in dry eye, I've got a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff just for dry eye. You know, I mean, there's a lot that, it, that you've purchased and you can't just give it away. You know, you can't just, oh, it's pretty nice, I'll just give it away. So I, it's a present, great the course, present the argument to the young doctor that says, I want to buy an, be in a private practice, but I just want to, all to be given to me. So one of the things that I've done, and, and it seems to work with me and under several occasions is you've got to be, understand that these ODs really do not understand the economics of the things you mentioned. So they, you know, they still under the mentality, you buy a frame for $10, you sell it for 30, you made $20. And they don't understand that's not true. Okay. So what I do is I will share a year end PL. And the only thing I won't share is doctor compensation, but I'll share everything up to net profit before doctor comp. And then I show that I go through the, some of the key items. I show them what cost of goods means and what it equates to. I show them what after operation costs. I see what you you end up with. And then once I show them that number, I say, by the way, I haven't been paid and any other doctor who hasn't been paid. And that includes not only my payment, but my insurance, any other things I may put through the business all indirect costs of running the practice that fall under my compensation bucket. And once they start seeing that, they usually they'll ask some questions and they start just getting a little bit, and they usually will say, no one's ever really showed me that. Now I'm starting to get, they get a feel on the dynamics of what it, the cost of running a practice. And usually if you do that, they, they may say, you know, this might really make sense. Now I understand what I have to do and how to do it. And, and they're appreciative. They don't think you're just, you're making a tremendous amount of money at, at their cost. That's not the case at all. So I, I, I do share P&Ls with, with these people up into doctor compensation. Right. And I, I, and I think that is difficult for a junior doctor to even understand that because when you start talking about, let's say, even $1 million, you know, or multiple, of course, in your practices, you're like, God, can't you just give me like 300000 and That would really help out. <laughs> Yeah, so, so, so I'll show them that practice they're going to work in. I, I, I'm not going to release everything. So they're right. going to work a, a new practice or an existing practice. I say, okay, let's look at the P&Ls for this practice. And let's assume it did a million dollars, okay? So I'll, I'll just show them the dynamics of, of the cost in that practice and what's left. I mean, for some reason, they think that the practice, if it's doing a million, they, they in their mind, the practice must be making a half a million. And they don't realize that in an average practice, a C practice, it's it's made me making two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Okay, so it's it's really important that they understand those dynamics. And 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 even if it, the practice is a huge practice, at least they understand the cost that we have to deal with every single day in running that business. And I'll tell you, not only the cost in the P and L, show you can you can show them the cost part of your your balance sheet and total kind of debt you've incurred by buying that $200,000 worth of equipment for dry eyes. You got to pay that back. And by the way, that doesn't show up in your P&L. Okay. So these are things that when you, when you show a doctor, they can get overwhelmed, but at least they have an idea of, you know, that's kind of one-on-one what it costs to run an optometric business today. Well, and I would include risk. Yep. Sure. Risk. All the risk. You know, I took yeah, there's the risk involved in because there's no guarantee that you ever are even going to stay in business because yep. things can happen, external forces in the community, you know, your your 
your major insurance company that you counted on or those factories or whatever, they can say, yeah, we're done. We, we got a lower bid from someone else. So, um, yeah, so it is difficult for them to understand. And I think while we've always worried about uh, external forces, I remember when auto refractors first came out, people were saying, this is the demise of optometry. Now the current talks are about teleoptometry or teleophthalmology, about, you know, flight of RXs to Zenny, Warby Parker, and all the others. So I think we're, we'll always be there, but these are challenges that still have to be met, and they, and they are met with added risk. Yeah. Hey, Jerry, I want to flip topics here. Um, there's a lot of discussions online about folks dropping vision plans, and, you know, someone might drop one and think over time they can get off them all. I, I personally don't think it's possible to drop all the plans and maintain your standard of living. What are your thoughts on that? Thank Patients you. just will say, you know what? You're off the plan. There's another optometrist one mile away. I love you guys. You have great frames. You've taken care of my family for 20 years, but I got to do it's right for my pocketbook. Yeah, I, I think it's very difficult to create a 100% boutique practice in our industry. I mean, there, there's a few optometric practices, very few in large, large markets like in Manhattan or, or right. in, so forth, where you may have that opportunity because there's, there's enough people in a high income category that are willing to pay uh, X amount of dollars to do it. It's very unusual. I, I know of a few doctors, one in particular in Washington State that has a great practice who, try, who, who was not accepting, made that move, cut, I mean, think all the vision plans. It was just taking the medical plans and, and went back in a year because it really had a negative impact in his practice. And it took him years to get it back because once patients leave you, they left. So I think that, I think it, what's important is that you spend time as an optometrist, not, not just taking a vision plan in, but really understanding how you maximize every penny in that plan. You can't afford to have nickels and pennies fall through the cracks. And, and, and I can promise you that the vision plans will not tell you how to do that. Okay, so it's something you got to do. You're going to have to do it on your own. No, they just they just tell you to purchase the product they're selling in. Yeah, yeah, you've got. You, I, I'm I'm a firm believer. Those they you know there's a thing called acquisition cost. What's the cost to bring a patient in? And that's the cost. That's what that's what the vision plans are doing. They're bringing they're putting patients in in your offices. The reimbursements, unfortunately, are not what we really want. But you got to find a way to make it work. Rather than spending your time of complaining about it, find a way to make it work. And then you can forecast out what that might look like, depending what percent of your revenues is that actual vision plan. Okay, so Jerry, one of the things that people are speaking about is the flight of RXs. Now, it's not like it was before, because people would say, oh, well, I want to copy my RX. Of course, you're always going to give them copy their RX. But now, if you had insurance, I mean, you never lost those patients. And now people are saying, I don't even care about my insurance. I can get my glasses so much cheaper, someone else, I don't care about, I don't even want to use my insurance because I always pay something, you know, and, and I've had patients where I say, look, you have a zero copay on the, on the frame and uh, you could pick out a $150 frame, just pick it out, take it with you, stick it in a drawer, give it to someone else. And, 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 you know, it was a recent couple and they, so, you know, they're not even interested in getting their free frames without lenses, you know? So, uh, and, and this has been a growing trend. People are ignoring their benefit plan and, and just getting their RXs to go. And they don't have time to look. They're not going to look. And, uh, you know, you just can't force them. So I know you had the, the Guardian plan before. You had things where patients would uh, get pre-set up on care credit and, and different plans like that. But how are you handling the people now that don't even want to use their insurance? They just want their RXs to go to some cheap place. So let me, let me, Steve Wilson and I have discussed this. Let me tell you our thoughts. Let me tell you why we feel that happens, okay? And okay. we don't see it. I, I see a lot of patients with vision plans that come in. There may be no change. I say, hey, you got, you got your cover for glasses. And they say, no, I don't think I'll, I'm, I'm not, I'll be okay. I'll wait till next year. Or can I have my prescription? And when you really sit down with that patient and you ask them, you know, just, just help me out. Is there a reason you're not. And then if you help and help them and ask questions, well, here's what we found out. And it's not just us. We found out that a lot, and we'll use VSP as an example. So a VSP patient comes in, they're covered for glasses. They don't want to get new glasses, whether there's a change of prescription or not. 
And they said, you know, last year when I got glasses and I used my VSP, my copay was still $400. Right. And they, and they, so what they perceive is they're going to have to pay another $400. So we, what we have done is we've created a frame, our frame board. We have a managed care board and we have put that managed care board together where frame and lenses without, and I'm not saying all the bells and whistles are going to be there, but without all the bells and whistles, they can get a, a new frame, a great frame, progressive lenses, and their copay will be less than $200, quite a bit less. Okay. So it's in many cases, much less than half of what they're used to paying the previous year. So we've done, and, and we try, sometimes the copay is a lot less than that. We've tried to bring that down to allow those people to be able to get glasses because what they, what they look at is I can go to Walmart, get a pair of glasses without my VSP and just pay them $200. No, they go to Zenni for six ninety five. They go to Zenni six ninety five, or yeah. you know, even with a bifocal, they say, "Well, it cost me like fifty dollars." And yeah. you know, you're telling me right here that uh, VSP or IMED says I've got to pay seventy five just for one feature. So, so yeah. they're totally discounting the value of their insurance. Yeah. To which I say, don't even sign up for the insurance because I could see you on your medical for your cataracts, and you'll pay me whatever the refraction fee is, and now I've saved you another two hundred. But it yep. seems like there's nothing you can say to the cheap to these cheap people who will, you know, will, will deter them. And the more that you try to convince them, the more they entrench in what they formerly believe. So I've got this little saying, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So there's like, like they already have their mind made up and whatever their excuse is, they're not, they're not going to get their glasses. So, so, but it's more and more of those people. Yeah, and, and I'm not disagreeing with that. So in closing on that topic, okay, okay, um, we have a lot of patients that have that. And a lot of patients, listen, are going through some tough times. So they could do one. We have a value board uh, where they it's everything is packaged there, and it's it's comparable in price anywhere they go or better, okay? so And we have a great selection, by the way. The worst thing you do is have a bad selection. It's a great selection. And that's, that's, that's the first option. The second option is letting them know, by the way, that copay you paid last year. And if they don't bring it up, bring it up yourself because that's what they're thinking. We now have a, a board where you're going to be a surprise by the, the quality and the look of a lot of these designer frames and your copay is going to be less than half. And in some cases, almost nothing. Does it make sense at least look? And, a lot, and, and what we're finding just by doing that, and this is coming from the doctor or the scribe, is that to say, yeah, I'll take a look. And I, if, if that's the case, then maybe I should take a look because they're planning on going somewhere else. So you should have at least two options. One, a value board, because you don't want, you know, a lot of doctors, unfortunately, I don't know if you saw the latest data that independent optometry still supplies about 75% of the eye exams, but less than 45% of, of glasses are purchased in independent optometry. So that means we're seeing those patients and we have a very low capture rate that's another that's a kpi you need to be following but you have to have those two options you have to rehearse and, and and role play exactly how what you're going to tell patients and if you do that i promise you that you'll save a lot of those patients that are walking with those scripts cool well we're getting close to wrap it up here i want you to give us a little dose of inspiration here so for the newer docs or more established doctors what are two opportunities that we should be going for right now to maintain profitability in our practice? So I, I think, I think I never discount the retail component. So let me just tell you real quickly what I think is deficient in a lot of practices. And, and I'll call this opportunities. The shopping experience and 95% of the optometric practice in the retail component is terrible. It's not, it's not C it's worse than C it's bad. Okay. So you've got to, you've got to relook at your dispensary. And is it, is it the merchandising? Is it? It's, it's merchandising and paint on the walls. Lack of, lack of redundancy of product. Okay. Most stocks have too much inventory, but that's an economic issue. So the, the point is you need to have, and here's when in our office, 60% of our frames are in a managed care board. We call it for him and for her. That's managed care. 16% we call designer optique. Our value board is about 20%. And that we have $49, $89 frames, but they're all packaged. But the, when, I, when I put $49 frames or $89 frames, it, they gravitate there rather than going elsewhere. And then we have uh, children's and sunglasses that take it to 100%. And, and we use that template at all offices. And it's, 
it's easy for patients to shop. It's easier to work with vendors that way, you know, categories you're in. And you want to make sure that your frame board management system is such that good selling frames are still on the board. And that's what you're going to see over the next two years. You're going to see a lot of integration with certain companies that are inventorying product. So you, you do not sell off your board. And that is static. Static boards. Yeah, I think the future in our industry is as a static board. Do not sell off your board. Well, uh, the, problem, the problem with that is, is it's all branded frames that can be found on the internet in the static realm. So, well, it, you're doing that so you have good selling frames. If you're monitoring your turn ratios, the only time we saw that you should be selling off the board is a frame that's not moving. So, if you if your turns are are less than three times a year and you're not improving that, that should be the average three times turn a year in your, in your frame boards other than other than you know kind of certain products that you are niche products then then you need to look at other lines the second thing so we talked about what some things you can do and the second thing is is creating professional services that might differentiate you or allow you to do things medically medically speaking that are, are, are creating great revenue but are also very patient-centric where you're doing something for your patients. There's a lot of new things out there uh, that we could do just, but I always recommend just don't go out and buy equipment. Make sure you have a plan to utilize that, whether it be dry eye or something else, forecast what you're going to, what kind of revenue you're going to make, what kind of profitability you're going to take, but put a lot of time into medical optometry because you look through 2025, ophthalmology growth is totally flatlined. The amount of ophthalmologists coming in, is I think it's about 2.3%. I'm giving a lecture at PECA on that, as a matter of fact. Uh, from 2025, the optometric growth is 12.5%. So that means that if you want a medical eye visit with ophthalmology, you're not going to be able to get in. That's why it's a huge opportunity for optometry to really take advantage of medical optometry. And there's a lot of things out there that you can do uh, that are great revenue generators, but more importantly, needed for patients and uh, that you could do rather than going and waiting six weeks to go see an ophthalmologist. All right. So I think a lot of that is real kind of traditional optometry. And we're always worried that we have uh, expensive frames and just nicer, just general nicer things. We try to have things that people can't find elsewhere online. Uh, so maybe for average demographic, that might work. But if you have those value boards, you really run the risk of people who want something spectacular kind of going down to quality that would be less than that that's going to be satisfying for them or maybe just from a design standpoint you pr you price it out transparently as as to what the costs are right yeah and so what you brought up is is a great it's a great dis a topic to discuss because a lot of people feel that way we've got i've got frames in my office for four or five hundred dollars what we find is this what everyone's got to remember is this when a patient comes to your practice and they don't purchase and they go elsewhere because they don't want to spend the money. There's a, a definite possibility that patient is never coming back because don't think for a second when they go purchase somewhere else that they're not being pitched to, well, can we make your next eye exam appointment here? And a lot of them say, you know, why not? The glasses, I, I saved a lot of money here. They're fine. I might as well just go here. So you're losing patients. I had a meeting with 1-800-CONTACTS a few years ago and they told us what they're finding in independent optometry and why they flourish. And, you know, it's just that we've got, to, and so in my practice, Ray, even though my practice is, is, is considered a value-ended practice, meaning we're not discount, uh, we're value-oriented, and some patients think we're more expensive than competition, but I can tell you that I would much rather not lose those patients. And I don't, I think people who are gonna purchase, better products are gonna purchase them anyway, People are, are want discount, are going to purchase discount from you or somewhere else. So I, I personally feel, I mean, there's the, it's a great discussion point, like I mentioned, that I don't hide that, that the value board at all. I flaunt it. And, I, and all our boards look good, but I flaunt that because I want people to be able to tell their friends, you know what, and these might be people in really fixed incomes and, and, and maybe right. have a tough time. What's the number one issue most optometrists have today? Not enough patients. Still oh, really? the issue with most of them, not everybody, maybe not you, but most, right. you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're too restrictive. And that's why I think you got to do these things. Okay. So 
as we're wrapping up, we didn't really talk about the online experience. I know you've discussed that the purchasing experience or the in-office experience is really uh, lacking. We've, we've worked uh, quite a bit on website and online experience and SEO and all that. How do you think that doctors could improve upon the online experience as a precursor to the in-office experience? What are you seeing there? Is it worth the effort to spend a decent amount of money to improve your, your social ranking, your Google ratings, your Google reviews, and not just have an average website, but really have a, a notable website? I, I think it's critically important. I think you can't afford not to. I think five-star Google reviews are hugely important. Not, not to, you know, I, I don't want to do anything. You know, I, I do have full disclosure. I, I, I'm a part owner in a company called Ocular Innovation. So one of the things that we've done in my practice, and I think this is segueing to what you said, is that when a patient comes to my practice, my optician at the end of the, when they're complete, my optician say, how was your experience? And if they say it was wonderful, we ask them right away, would you be willing to give us a five-star Google review? And they may say, well, I don't know how to do that. They said, you have your cell phone. So we've got a, we've got in all our dispensing tables, we've got a, a piece that stands up that uh, we take their phone. We just pull the phone up over the scan and we scan uh, right over the, the tabletop piece. And within seconds, uh, they gave us, we get a five-star review with Google. So we do it with their phone. We have that technology to do that. So I think that social media and reviews are hugely important. I don't know about you guys. I go very seldom to where I go anywhere, whether it be a doctor, a restaurant, anywhere, without checking reviews. So right. I, I think it's hugely important. And, I, and I'm not a millennial. So, uh, so I, think that, uh, I think those things, I don't think you can afford to thrive today without doing all those things. So you have them... Do you have them actually write the review right there at the table or? It's already done for them. It gives them an automatic five-star review. And, and if they want to put something in there, we'll, we'll, we can help. We actually help them do it because it takes seconds to do it. I mean, you help them write it. You, yes. Staff writes it for them. Yes. Okay. We do it for them. And we get, I think uh, we're told we, we get, a, we get a, a report. I think we had 50 five-star reviews over the last several weeks at all locations. So, so uh, I guess they have to have a Gmail account to do that. So. Yeah, you had, yeah, that's correct. But uh, the data shows that 75% of everyone online has a Gmail account. Okay, so we have a lot of people that say, oh, yeah, oh, I'm going to write a review. But I'd say probably one in a hundred of those people. We do know, it actually, yeah, right. it's, it's done before they leave. Okay. And all right. Hopefully they don't re resend that or, uh, or say they forced me to do it or anything. Never, like never, had, never had that happen. Okay, We've that been sounds good. Yeah. Even on your Yelp, on your Yelp reviews, we we this is all Google, so I'm not sure yeah. what we're doing there. Okay. So, uh, but you know, we have another we have another uh, another venue we use, but this this is so easy uh, that we've been you know we've been using this, and uh, okay. I don't know the data. You might know it better than me on which, who looks at what, uh, but you know, when I go check reviews, I'm just checking reviews in general. Okay. Well, Jerry, it's been most enjoyable having you uh, chat here and letting the audience listen in. We, we speak uh, fairly often. We see each other at meetings and such, and you've always been an innovator. Uh, you answered, I think, a lot of the questions that our listeners want and, and really don't know who to ask, you know, especially about doctor compensation, especially about trends in the marketplace and what, what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong here. So why don't you give us a little closing statement and let us know where, where our listeners can contact you. Sure. So I, I, I want to tell, I still encourage people to practice independently. You know, it seems like the conversation today is private equity, private equity, private equity. And I can promise you that private equity today, and the data shows by the end of this year, they'll, they'll tap into less than 7% of the market of all independent practices. So if you think that, they're encompassing everything they're not, okay? So there is huge opportunity for independent practitioners who take the time to watch their operations closely and do strategic planning because you can move much faster than private equity moves and in many cases do a much better job. So I would certainly encourage practices, independent practitioners to do that and partner with a 
partner with a, an alliance group or individuals that might be able to help or mentor you and, and do this with people who are already doing it successfully. So, you know, I, I can't emphasize that enough. And if people want to contact me, I, I do give up myself. It's best to text me, not to call me, uh, to text me at 330-714-2231. And if you do text me, tell me who you are and so and, and why you're texting me and what it's in reference to. And I will get back to you. Okay, excellent. Perry, any uh, last words? No, I appreciate uh, all your knowledge here, especially as far as compensation goes. Uh, this is, I think, what Dr. Brill calls hallway talk at meetings. Uh, you can go to a conference and get your education, but in the hallway is where the real value is. So, But we have it right here on the podcast, so that's great. Yeah, a lot of times you learn more from your colleagues uh, when you're away. So you're, we found your local, local colleagues aren't necessarily forthcoming and and this is information really that we all can use. So, all right, Jerry, well, you certainly have a nice day and we will see you at, I guess, the PECA meeting. Yeah, we'll, we'll see it. We'll see you uh, at the end of April. Great talking to you guys. And thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This brings us to the end of another episode of Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes. Go ahead and click over to our website, entrepreneur.com, or head over to Facebook to join our special Facebook group, Entrepreneur. See you there.